Section 5 of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. State of Parties in the City, Consulship of Cicero, and Conspiracy of Catalina, Part 1. The nobles might begin already to feel insecure, and while they still clung to the hope that Pompeius would protect them against their adversaries at home, they were anxious to provide for their own defence, without relying on his precarious assistance. On the whole they were content, perhaps, that he should continue absent from the city, while he removed the legions with him to a distance, and left them to depend on the civil arm and the irregular support of their own clients and dependents. Africa had been wrested from the rival faction of the Marians. Gaul and Spain had been placed under the government of their own partisans. The cohorts which watched over Italy and the city itself were for the most part officered by captains of their own choice, and the veterans of Sulla, scattered throughout the peninsula on lands assigned them by the dictator, secured them, it might be thought, an ample reserve both of influence and of military power. But the party of the Optimates wanted leaders. The chief men among them, however eminent from birth, wealth, and personal distinction, were uniformly deficient both in the power of attracting adherents and also of commanding them. Catullus, the most high-minded and honourable of all, wanted spirit, decision, and force of character, as he had too plainly shown in his contest with Lepidus. Lucullus, partly from indolence and self-indulgence, partly no doubt from mortification at the treatment he had received from his own party, no longer cared to mingle actively in state affairs. The policy of Crassus was simply selfish. He was seeking, or rather in accordance with his sluggish nature, was waiting for ascendancy over all parties, and was justly distrusted by all. Silanus, Murena, and others were not incompetent, indeed, to discharge the high office which became their eminence in rank and civil experience, but were plainly unequal to the task of leading and controlling. Hortensius possessed much influence as an orator, but his position hardly entitled him to command a political party, and generally the possessors of the greatest wealth among a wealthy nobility were more addicted to the enjoyment of personal luxuries than to the conduct of public affairs. The most active and vigorous of their class was not one of the wealthiest or the noblest. The authority which Marcus Porcius Cato eventually exercised among them was gained by his own actual merits and exertions. But he too, with all his zeal and energy, was lacking in discretion and judgment, and promised to offer only violent and intemperate counsels at a crisis which demanded the utmost moderation and circumspection. Cato inherited the name, the temper, and the principles of the illustrious censor his great-grandfather, and therewith enjoyed in no slight degree the respect and confidence of the Roman people. He believed as devoutly as his ancestor in the mission of a superior caste of citizens to rule the state, in the right of the Roman people, the lords of the human race, to hold the world in bondage, in the absolute authority of the husband over the wife, the parent over the child, 
the master over his bondsmen. His temper, indeed, was more kindly than his principles, and the gleams of good humour which break occasionally through the cloud of prejudices in which he studiously involved himself, afford some relief to the general harshness of his character and conduct. Born in the year 95 B.C., he had witnessed the close of the social war, and resented as a child the compromise in which that struggle resulted. Nevertheless, his feelings had revolted from the bloody measures with which Sulla had avenged it, and he alone of his party had sighed over their most signal victories, and lamented the cruel retaliation they had demanded. From early life he had trained himself in all the hardness of the ancient manners, which had become now generally obsolete. Inured to frugality and of simple tastes, he had resisted all temptations to rapine and extortion. Enrolling himself in the priesthood of Apollo, he acknowledged, perhaps, a divine call to a higher life in the practice of bodily self-denial. He imbibed the doctrines of the Stoic philosophy, the rigidity of which accorded well with his own temper, and he strove under their guidance to direct his public conduct by the strictest rules of private integrity. If he failed, it was through the infirmity of our common nature, not from personal vanity or caprice. But it cannot be denied that the exigencies of public affairs drove him as well as others to many a sordid compromise with his noble principles. The strength to which he aspired became indeed the source of manifold weakness. It made him vain of his superior virtues, confident in his judgments, morose and ungenerous, a blind observer of forms, and impracticable in his prejudices. A party composed of such men as Cato would have been ill-matched with the ranks of pliant intriguers opposed to them on every side, but when the selfish, indolent, and unprincipled chose themselves a champion of a character so alien from their own, there could be no hearty and therefore no fruitful alliance between the leader and his followers. As yet, however, the ascendancy of Cato in the councils of the Optimates was unconfirmed. The Senate hoped to secure in the rising orator Cicero a supporter whom they might first use for their own purposes, and then, if convenient, cast away. For Marcus Tullius Cicero, the son of a Volscian knight, with neither birth nor connection nor wealth, might be easily induced, as they supposed, to serve them with his undoubted talents for the sake of the distinctions to which they could introduce him, and might not be too exacting in the devotion he would expect from them in return. Cicero had sought at the commencement of his career to attach himself to Pompeius, but Pompeius had always treated him, as he treated others, with coldness, and the great captain was moreover absent. Again, Cicero had admired Caesar, and inclined to lean upon his support, but the dangerous policy of Caesar had become lately developed, and it was plain that the aspirant's choice must now be made between the Senate and the champion of the people. Public men, indeed, were now well aware that the state was in danger from the machinations of a revolutionary cabal which was swiftly ripening to an explosion. The real designs of the infamous Catalina and his associates 
must indeed always remain shrouded in mystery the accounts we have received of them come from the mouths of their opponents exclusively the declamations of cicero supported in the main by the sententious history of sallust became the recognized text on which the later roman writers relied and beyond these there exist no contemporary materials for forming a judgment upon the facts doubtless it was the interest of the nobles to blacken the character of the conspirators to the utmost nevertheless it is impossible to deny and on the whole it would be unreasonable to doubt that such a conspiracy there really was and that the very existence of the commonwealth was for a moment seriously imperilled the civil wars had left society at rome in a state of general disturbance the license of the times had engendered a reckless spirit of selfishness and violence criminal ambitions had been fostered by the spectacle of successful treacheries the highest honours had fallen to the most worthless of men who had had the audacity to strike for them at the same time the plunder of the east had flooded rome with wealth and luxuries it had created a class of men who did not scruple to employ their riches in the purchase of venal votes and the dignity of the commonwealth had been too commonly prostituted to vulgar arrogance money had been easily made but it had been no less easily lost even in the highest orders if many had become suddenly rich more no doubt had found themselves no less suddenly impoverished the state lay in danger from the intrigues of the one class still more perhaps from the violence of the other a cry rose more and more loud among the young reprobates who hung on the skirts of the aristocracy for relief from their debts for wiping out the accounts against them if necessary in blood such men were led by accomplished bravos such as lucius sergius catalina notorious himself as a ruined spendthrift and distinguished at the same time for his personal bravery as well as by his high connections the city was rife with stories of this man's wild and wicked deeds he had cruelly murdered an enemy of the dictator he had assassinated his own brother he had sacrificed his youthful son with a view to a union with a rich but profligate woman yet with the stigma of a broken fortune and all those crimes upon him we are required to believe that catalina had advanced far in the career of public favour and of civil honours and had at last proposed himself as a candidate for the consulship nay more the discreet and decorous cicero had not hesitated to join with him in competition for the office and had undertaken his defence against a charge of malversation in the province which he had been already allowed to administer even now he was commonly believed to be engaged in a plot against the state and a vague rumour pointed even to men so distinguished as crassus and caesar as associated with him the nobles had little confidence in any of their natural leaders and when the ascendancy of their party if not the actual safety of the state was threatened by a plot which they were perhaps unable to unmask they were willing to condone cicero's offence in the impeachment of verres and the court he had assiduously paid to the people while they lent their influence to raise him to the consulship sixty three b c 
they managed at the same time to associate with him one of their own order named antonius who it seems was but a faithless partisan after all cicero was naturally elated at the elevation he had attained and easily believed himself necessary to the party which had thus sought his assistance he now devoted himself to the interests of the senate drew more and more away from the adherents of pompeius from crassus and from caesar and when the leader of the people proposed an agrarian law through the tribune rulus he denounced and overruled the attempt the public domain in italy had been almost wholly alienated from the state the veterans of sulla had been recompensed with grants of all the land which was available for the enrichment of the poorer citizens but the conquests of the republic in gaul and spain had supplied a large reserve of territory and rulus had proposed that by the sale of this reserved land funds should be raised for the endowment of the lower populace it might be expected that the loss thence resulting to the revenue would be amply balanced by the tribute which was flowing more and more largely from the east the motion seems to have been generally politic but it may be presumed that it was with party views that caesar had urged and it was with such views undoubtedly that cicero and the senate had opposed it the contest served to bind the aspiring consul and his new friends more closely together meanwhile the intrigues of catalina were ripening and cicero was keenly watching them and gathering into his hands the clues which should lead to their exposure it seems that the arch-conspirator while selecting his associates and preparing his resources even for civil war if necessary was still bent on obtaining the consulship for which he offered himself a second time and while he still retained a hope of success in this critical undertaking he studiously refrained from committing himself to open violence cicero however had decided that it was better for his party better for the state to meet catalina as an avowed traitor than to allow him to attain the legitimate power of the highest magistracy he applied himself to the support of solanus and morena both of them as has been said chiefs among the optimates but both of them held in regard by crassus and caesar and fitted accordingly to secure the suffrage of all the party leaders it was only by outrageous bribery that catalina could hope to succeed against such a combination and here too cicero contrived to baffle him by promising a decree of ten years banishment against the candidate who should be convicted of buying the votes of the people this decisive measure drove the conspirator to despair his preparations for the alternative on which he had resolved were already far advanced arms had been collected the restless veterans of sulla had been tampered with and abundant aid elsewhere secured it was said that the fleet at ostia which commanded the access of the corn vessels to the city had been gained the officers in command in africa and even in spain had promised assistance the garrisons of these neighbouring provinces might be wafted to italy before the first news of disturbance could reach the faithful legions of the east even the loyalty of the consul antonius was at best doubtful but cicero would not allow it to be called into question the band of traitors certainly comprised however 
various personages of distinction and influence sallust has recorded the names of several senators and as many knights cornelius lentulus was designated praetor for the ensuing year a vain and ambitious man who fancied he was himself the leader of the projected enterprise and trusted in a reported oracle of the sibyl which declared that three cornelii should reign in rome cinna and sulla both cornelii had so far fulfilled the prophecy intoxicated with the hope of this coming triumph lentulus would have put arms into the hands of his slaves but from this atrocity even catalina shrank End of section five